me seduced. No kiddo. I'd like to believe you're aware enough, even now, to know that there's nothing sadistic in my actions. This moment, this is me and my most masochistic. Well, it's your baby. Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're working our way through the history of films that rage against the machine. Today, we're discussing the 2004 film Kill Bill Volume 2. Hmm. I'm your host, and if I lost both my eyes, I would choose to develop supernatural echolocation powers. Hmm. My co-host is Guy, who is always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Hmm. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And as mentioned in the last podcast, we're doing something a bit different this time around. So usually when we have a guest, we mix our discussion with our walkthrough with them. And we have this, you know, very long podcast episode. In this case, we have two movies to get through and we have two really great guests who are coming up. And so we couldn't do like a six hour podcast. You know, There probably aren't too many people. Who would listen to a six-hour podcast? So <laughs> we're doing our two walkthroughs, this being the second, and then we're going to have a separate discussion with our guests so people can choose what they want to listen to. Okay. Now, I'm going to say this up front, and I'm really pleased with this because, you know, I'd never watched the second film, and it turned out, as I mentioned last time, I'd never actually watched the first film. I just had seen a lot about it. Mm-hmm. The second one did not go the way I expected and in a very positive way for me. I was sort of expecting, I mean, now, and of course, John Wick came after, long after these films, but John Wick is sort of violence from beginning to end. And based on the first film, Mm -hmm. you kind of expect that of this film. And that's not what we got at all. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I think, uh, more more dialogue and and less uh, less action. Yeah, really. There's only a little bit of violence here and there, and so it's a very different film, which I appreciate. And I also, I kind of suspect that Tarantino designed it that way. Like the first movie is going to have a lot of violence and pull people in, and then the second movie would have more of the you know the talking and right. stuff, so that people would be willing to see it. Yeah. Well, I. I think uh, di- dialogue is something that he's usually uh, quite good at. Uh, so, so, yeah, this suits me just fine. <laughs> okay. So, with that, let's get into Kill Bill Volume 2. Well, it starts off. We get a recap of Bill shooting the bride uh, that we saw in the first movie. It's just, you know, sort of uh, showing us what came before. I'll still say one of the most uh, brutal shots I've ever seen. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then we get a black and white image of the uh, the bride driving down the road. I, I think it's a rear projection. She's yeah. not actually driving. <laughs> well, one of the things I love about this, because there's so many points where he's doing these references, right? So he makes it, so it used to be like in the 60s, like if you watch something like A Clockwork Orange, right? They had points in there where they had rear projection, and it was just really obviously rear projection, and that was just because they just couldn't do it any better than that. Oh, yeah. So here he's choosing to do bad rear projection, which you don't have to Mm -hmm. do anymore. 
in oh, order yeah. to kind of reference those old movies, right? <laughs> yeah, and he did uh, similar things, well, quite a few similar things in the uh, the first movie, you know, all the different sets that were obviously sets. Right. Uh, they were well-constructed sets, but still obviously, uh, you know, little models. And then in this one, later on, we'll have all sequence where the film quality changes a little deliberately, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so the bride's driving down the road, uh, and we get the view from a camera that's on the hood, and she's talking into the camera through the mm -hmm. windshield. She's narrating what she's been up to, and at the point that she's narrating, she's killed everybody on her list except for one remaining person, and now she's going to kill Bill. Right, and this is one of the other things he's done in both these films, right? Like, we know she has at least uh, one other person to kill, so this is mm -hmm. screwing around with the timeline, which he also did in Pulp Fiction, right? Mm -hmm. Where he played around with the timeline. So constantly in the in both of these films, she's killing people out of order. <laughs> yeah. I think even early on in the first movie, we saw... Somebody crossed off a list who actually doesn't die until this movie. Yeah, that very first scene or a couple scenes in the first film, she's already crossed out the first person and she's actually killing the second person. <laughs> and then she goes back yeah. and kills the first person. So, yeah, this and what one of the things I actually kind of appreciate is basically what Tarantino is doing is he wants it to be in the order that's going to make it most interesting, right? And mm -hmm. There's like a principle in writing where they'd say, well, you know, start telling your story, but then delete everything until the first point that's interesting. <laughs> like just, <laughs> you know, don't tell the stuff that's not interesting. Just jump to the point that's interesting. And that's usually a pretty good idea. Yeah. You want to, uh, well, you don't always have to, but it's often a good idea to start to in medias race, I think yeah. the term is, in the middle of things. <laughs> So she's going to kill Bill. Then we get the uh, titles appear on the screen. Chapter 6, Massacre at Two Pines. And Two Pines is the uh, wedding chapel in El Paso. Uh, and I think uh, I think it may also be the name of the uh, shopping mall uh, in Back to the Future, where they're Twin Pines <laughs> Mall. Uh, I think, yeah, that's right. probably true. Yeah, I don't remember. Because... Because uh, if I remember right, Marty McFly knocked down one of the pines with his DeLorean, mm. and so it was <laughs> Lone Pine Mall when he got back to, the, back to the future. Anyway, we hear the bride's narration saying that uh, this massacre is often referred to as a wedding massacre, but she says it was actually a wedding rehearsal. And inside the building, and this is, this is all uh, black and white, by the way, this section, the pastor and a woman next to him was presumably his wife. By the way, uh, I mentioned last time there's this great documentary about the stunt person who took on Uma Thurman's role. Well, yeah. a huge part of that is her mentor, who's an older woman, and that older woman is his wife in this role. She got uh, he oh. cast her as his wife. She is one of the really unusual older women stunt people and her whole family is part of the stunt thing. Anyway, so again, uh -huh. totally worth watching the documentary Double Dare and seeing who these people are and everything. So uh, uh, Tarantino was being uh. very nice to her by casting her in this role. Oh, sure. <laughs> and both the pastor and his wife, they have good uh, character actor style faces. Mm -hmm. uh, very, uh, They work very well, I think. 
pastor's going over the details and his wife has some of her own opinions about, uh, how things should go. And, uh, Rufus is the piano player. He asks if they have a song and I read something on the internet. I was looking up a detail and, uh, it ended up taking me to comments on Reddit. And one of the comments that I read was, uh, it's kind of odd that two people who are getting married, who both work in a record store and love music, don't have a song in mind. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting little point. <laughs> well, what got me about Rufus is Rufus is Samuel L. Jackson. Mm, yeah, I did not realize that yeah. until I saw it in the credits. Yes, yeah, so, and he's playing a role that's on, on screen for like 30 seconds or a minute. So, But, you know, clearly he has a relationship with Tarantino because he was in Pulp uh, Fiction and all that. So I sure. think he was willing to do a small role for him. Oh, yeah. And you never even see his face. I think you only see him from, like, behind his head. Yeah, that may not be, that may be why I didn't realize it was him. Uh, he might be wearing sunglasses, too, I can't recall. Mm. But uh, but anyway, he uh, we do get a little bit of backstory for him. He talks about how he's played with practically every band that ever mm -hmm. came through Texas. Yeah, um, that's probably going to be coming to an end soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he may have played with his last band. So the, the bride's side, you know, the pastor and his wife, they're talking about how traditionally the, uh, the aisle splits the church up into, uh, the bride's side and the groom's side, but the, but the bride has no guests. Mm. Uh, so there's no need to separate sides. People can just sit anywhere. Uh, she does have a few friends with her sitting be beside or behind her and her fiance. Uh, they're presumably all friends from the record store. Well, she turns and whispers to them that the pastor's wife is getting on her nerves and she's going to go get some air. Uh, and they make excuses for her, you know, her delicate condition, being pregnant and all. You know, she needs some air, so no big deal. As she approaches the door going outside, she hears this soft Asian flute playing. I'm, I'm, I should have looked it up. Uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head it might be a koto, but I'm... That could be very wrong. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. So, <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm going to say for all the great things in this film, it doesn't look to me at all like he's really playing this flute. <laughs> <laughs> and the man who's playing it out on the porch is Bill, we find out. Mm -hmm. um, and it's David Carradine or Carradine. I'm not sure which way it's pronounced, but he's. He's from uh, the television show Kung Fu, is one of the places that he's remembered from. And, uh, of course, in Office Space, that show is highly praised. Um, that's really how Yeah, uh, that was huge Peter... for me as a kid. Although the funny thing is, apparently, he's very difficult, or used to be anyway. I mean, he's dead now, but um, to work with. And he was a total drunk on that show, so literally, uh -huh. they would... For certain shots, they would just like lean him up, you know, sitting against a wall so he could do a line or two. <laughs> <laughs> and, Very good. And there's a, well, I was just reading more on it. I think I already had said something about this, but there's the claim that Bruce Lee came up with this series concept and they didn't go with him because they wanted a white guy instead of a, you know, mm, Asian. Mm -hmm. Today I was reading more about this, and other people say, no, that's not true. You know, he didn't come up with the series. He did go up for the role, hmm. and he wasn't accepted. 
but he didn't come up with the series. Now, I don't know oh. what the truth is, so I just put that out for our listeners, you know. <laughs> yeah. Although it would have made more sense with Bruce Lee in this role. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> so I, a little side note, for years, uh, you know, the last time I saw these movies was quite a while ago, probably not long after they came out. Um, and for many years now, I have remembered Bill as being played by Willem Dafoe. And I don't know <laughs> why, because he doesn't, you know, the two actors don't look a whole lot alike. I think there is some facial similarity. They both have kind of very etched faces, you know. Yeah, they um, are kind of craggy or something. I yeah. Know how you'd describe what it. I will say, especially when we get to the end, is for someone who had been a literally, I mean, David Carradine had been a joke for a long time, right? He was showing up in straight to video stuff that was really, really mm. terrible. So this movie really revised his career. And he does a great job in this movie. I mean, a lot of people thought he was going to get an Oscar. Now, in a, in a kind of crime, this neither of these movies got any attention from the Oscars. Oh, um, yeah. But they should have, and it's, you know, to their shame. <laughs> so, well, they, yeah. they were probably too appealing to the public. Yeah. The Oscars doesn't often go for that sort of thing nowadays. Anyway, the bride asks Bill if he's going to be nice, and he says he's never been nice, but he'll do his best to be sweet. And we get a we get a foot shot of her sandals and uh, or I'm not going to list everyone, but it, you know, we discussed <laughs> this in the previous episode that it's something Quentin Tarantino is known for. Yeah. And now, to be fair, like we also have the foot shots of his boots, you know. But yeah, we get a lot oh, yeah. of uh, naked foot shots of Uma Thurman. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and especially once you're once you're looking for it, it's it's just everywhere in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and uh, there's a, there's one very disturbing shot. <laughs> so they're discussing the groom, whose name is Tommy. Uh, he owns a used record store in El Paso. And the bride wants her girl to grow up in that environment and not in the world of a well-paid assassin, which is what she was. Tommy is very young and very, I mean, he just doesn't look right for her, you know? Yeah, yeah, he's he's... Pleasant enough, but but he's inoffensive to the point of being yeah not not in the league of well paid assassins. Yeah, Bill wants to come to the wedding and sit on the bride's side. He says, which is a big deal because there was no one to be on the bride's side. <laughs> right. The bride notices Tommy is coming, so she whispers quickly, "Call me Arlene." <laughs> And uh, she introduces Bill as her father, which he, he he seems a little bit taken aback by that, but he plays along. And Tommy is is an agreeable guy. He's you know a little bit of a I wouldn't say hipster exactly, but he is a little bit of that in him, I think. And uh, uh, definitely much less intense and much less dangerous in demeanor than yeah. uh, than Bill is. Bill asks if it isn't bad luck to see the bride in her dress before the ceremony, which is a is a detail I hadn't known about. I had always heard it was just bad luck to see her before the ceremony. Period. But uh, uh, that that could very well be specific to the dress. Also, I just don't I don't know. know. <laughs> and Tommy says, you know, with sort of a knowing leer, he says, "I guess I just believe in living dangerously," which. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, it's one of those lines that just kind of makes your heart sink because mm. you know what's coming up, and he he's lived more dangerously than he thought he was. Well, um, you know, and this gets to a Hitchcock thing, right? One of the things that Tarantino is doing here, because we know what happened from the first film, right? We know what happens mm-hmm. to everyone here. Hitchcock always said, you have to know that the bomb is there. Right. In order to for it to be suspenseful. You can't just have the bomb blow up mm-hmm. out of the blue. So this is a good example of that. We know everyone's going to die. Right. Which makes this way more suspenseful than if we didn't know it. And that's one of the reasons I think that his time shifting works, right? If he had told this story from beginning to end, we would just, if at the very first of the first movie, we'd watch these people rehearsing for the marriage, not knowing they were all going to die. Right. So it would actually probably be kind of boring. Yeah. Well, we, it, it would be. S- surprising and shocking and all that when the assassins but the actual you know rehearsal part would be boring right but here everything they do that's the rehearsal or whatever is suspenseful because we know they're all going to die right (laughs) we know it's all prelude to some bad stuff yeah so uh tommy actually suggests that bill should give the bride away because he's her father Uh, but no he's just going to sit in the audience yeah But Bill does agree to have dinner with them after the rehearsal, only on the condition that he pays for it all, which, of course, she's not going to. The the bill, uh, to (laughs) be clear, the bill is going to pay for it all. Oh, yeah. 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 Which is easy to offer when you know you're going to shoot everybody. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Bill's going to cover the bill, except except he won't. (laughs) And Bill tells the bride, if he's the man you want, then go stand by him. So... Apparently, this is her last chance to back out. Mm. She doesn't know it, though. Um, and then she even kisses him and thanks him, you know, and uh, a little prematurely, as, as it turns out. The camera backs out of the chapel then, you know, goes all the way from up in the front where they're standing before the altar, you know, back out through all the pews, out the front door. And then we see the four assassins standing abreast out there. They raise their guns. They walk through the wide doors of the chapel. Uh, and then we hear shots and screaming. And in fact, yeah. through the windows of the chapel, we can actually see some muzzle flashes. Yep. And that's uh, that's the end of the coverage of the event at the wedding chapel. Uh, then the video switches to full full color, and we see a beat-up trailer home in a canyon. It's very remote, nothing around. And Bud, one of the assassins who participated in that massacre, he's speaking to Bill, who is there in person. And we find out, uh, not I don't think in this scene, but we find out soon that Bill is actually Bud's brother. Yeah. The other thing I think that's important here is it's clear that Bud in the last four years has kind of gone to pot, right? I mean, he's constantly drinking beer. His Mm -hmm. arms are sort of flabby. Like, this is not the assassin guy from four years ago. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's he's dressed in some ratty old outfit. I think maybe like a T-shirt or wife beater or something like that. Yeah, yeah. uh, So they're talking about the bride's Hanzo sword that she's used to kill some of the other assassins. Bud says he hawked his Hanzo sword in El Paso for $250. 
Bill is very displeased, you know, that it's a Yeah, it's and a later we're going to find out a lot more about the significance of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting thing to keep in mind uh, about him mocking his sword. Now, what he does for a living is he's a bouncer in a strip club. And Bill has come here to warn his brother that uh, the bride is coming for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bud is strangely philosophical about it. He isn't mm-hmm. going to dodge his comeuppance. He says, that woman deserves her revenge and we deserve to die. But then again, so does she. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, there's a lot of stuff here I like how it plays out. So we'll talk about it as we get there. <laughs> So in the evening, uh, Bud drives his pickup truck to the My Oh My Club, and we see the titles uh, that begin Chapter 7, The Lonely Grave of Paula Schultz. Um, (laughs) Though it will be a little while before we find out what that refers to. Inside the club, he's shown up late. Bud has shown up late about 20 minutes. And as soon as he gets in there, his boss yells for him, Bud goes to Larry's office, and Larry chews him out for being late, and he goes into the chewing out at some length, and he uh, uh, starts crossing days off the calendar where uh, where Bud was supposed to work. Uh, he also chews him out for wearing what uh, Larry calls his shit kicker hat, which is just <laughs> sort of a standard issue cowboy hat. And Larry, you know, the, he doesn't get a big role in the movie. He just gets a minute or two, probably. Um, but while he's there, I found him a real entertaining character. He's, yeah. he's the kind of character I could see, you know, you could make a TV show about him, like the Sopranos Breaking Bad type uh, show. Yeah. You know, I could yeah. see it being entertaining. And it's interesting to see Bud, who we know is uh, a very skilled assassin, He's just standing there and taking it for his uh, low-wage job with a thankless boss. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, it's it's a neat little scene. It doesn't really, I mean, it does build up Bud's character. You know, it fills in details about Bud's character, I guess. But aside from that, it's not really directly contributing to the movie, except to. Uh, had more fun, interesting stuff, which is good in itself, I think. Mm. So Bud is supposed to go home and wait until Larry decides to call him back. But before he leaves, he has to go talk to Rocket, who has a very short role, probably 30 seconds or so, but it's entertaining. She's apparently the head stripper, probably uh, romantically involved with Larry somehow. And she seems a little smug about her position uh, because she can... She can order Bud around, and mm. she seems to enjoy doing it. And she conveys that in just a few sentences, so it's it's uh, it's it's neat. <laughs> and she wants Bud, in this case, to clean up the overflowed toilet before he leaves. So certainly, to the extent this scene does anything aside from entertaining, it's showing us that Bud has sunk so low that he's willing to put up with this sort of stuff when he could easily kill everybody in the Mm -hmm. bar. He returns home. He pauses outside the trailer. He's about to light a cigarette, and he pauses as if he senses something. Uh, After a moment, he heads inside, and he puts on a Johnny Cash record. And we see that the bride has been hiding under the trailer. Mm. And she sneaks out very quietly. 
she's getting her attack already. She's going to go burst in through the door when dogs start barking in the distance. And that uh, gets Bud's attention. He looks out the window. She flattens herself up against the wall of the trailer so he can't see her from that angle. After a moment of looking out there, he puts the record back on. Finally, she bursts in through the door, and he's sitting there in a chair facing the door with a shotgun, and he shoots her in the chest. Yeah, and I liked this because it was like, he's not an idiot. (laughs) He knows what's going on. He was ready. And she didn't expect this at all, obviously, because she let herself get shot. (laughs) Oh, right. It was was a surprise. Fortunately for her, she was uh, shot with rock salt and not actual uh, buckshot or birdshot (laughs) even. And that actually, that actually has been done in the past, the rock salt and the shotgun trick. Uh, and I know that for a fact because my dad, in his uh, youth, uh, got a buttful of it. <laughs> he was poaching apples, and uh, mm. uh, fortunately, he survived. <laughs> but uh, his dad uh, went to the guy who did it and gave him an earful, I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, the rock salt is a real thing, or, you know. At least was. I don't know how often it's used nowadays, because you'd probably get in trouble for it. So Bud kicks the Hanzo sword uh, out of arm's reach, and she's stinging from the salt right in her chest. And she spits in his face, which is not a great idea, because he (laughs) returns the favor. He's got a mouthful of chewing tobacco, and he spits that in hers. (laughs) He rolls her over and injects sedative in her butt cheek. After she's out, he calls L. Driver, uh, who is another one of the assassins, uh, Daryl Hannah. She's the one-eyed one, and she, yeah, she's the one. Yeah, we saw her in the first film because yeah, she went she, to her hotel or her the hospital. hospital. Yeah, yeah, and uh, at the last possible moment, uh, Bill told her to call it off. Bud offers L. this Hanzo sword. He says something uh, to the effect that it's the finest sword ever made by man. And the price is a million dollars. And I was okay with that on the condition that the bride must suffer to her last breath. And but it's also says, a funny contrast because we know he told Bill that he sold his Hanzo sword for $250. So the right. fact that he's asking for a million dollars for a Hanzo sword is interesting. <laughs> Yeah, although he does mention in this conversation that it's a, it's priceless, so uh, mm-hmm. he he does remember what Bill said about Hanzo sword. <laughs> so Bud agrees that the bride will suffer to her last breath. She wakes up bound hand and foot in the bed of a pickup. Bud drags her out. There's a second man digging up the grave of Paula Schultz. That's where the chapter title comes from. Her coffin is up out of the ground now. It's open nearby with the corpse still inside. The men talk about how cute the bride is in uh, sort of vulgar terms, and you sort of may wonder uh, if they're going to do something to her before they... Especially since in the first film we already saw that sort of thing happening. (laughs) Right, when she was in her coma, Mm -hmm. uh, we had that guy... But it seems in this case that they're not going to do that. They just uh, just plan to bury her alive. And Bud gives her a choice when she starts struggling. He uh, 
gives her the choice between struggling and getting her eyeballs full of mace and going down into the ground, blind and stinging. Or, if she's good, he'll give her a little pen light to use in the coffin. And right before he closes the lid on her, he says, This is for breaking my brother's heart. And the two men nail the lid on the coffin very thoroughly. Um, and this is this scene is pretty long and dark, and it's tense. Uh, I mean, there, there are long stretches where it's just pitch black. Occasionally, if she's moving the flashlight, she doesn't have it turned on yet, but she's moving it, and you'll see just the faintest reflection from the lens, mm -hmm. which is more more than you would probably actually see hmm. inside the coffin. But uh, uh, it's very, very dark, very uh, kind of harrowing. I mean, it gets, it gets your blood pumping. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes on for minutes with the sounds of the coffin being lowered into the hole and the sounds of dirt falling on the lid. And the bride is terrified. She's struggling against the solid wood. And this is this is not Paula's coffin. This is a freshly made uh, mm -hmm. coffin, just you know, bare bones pine coffin type. Yeah, and I, I think an interesting thing about the story right now is there's just no way you can see her getting out of this, right? Like, like right. how could she possibly do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seems uh seems pretty long odds for her. She turns on the flashlight finally, and now it's black and white film inside there, and finally. Finally, after a lot of dirt shoveling, truck starts up and it leaves. And suddenly we get a new title on the screen for Chapter 8, The Cruel Tutelage of Pi May. <laughs> and suddenly we're back in color film, and we see Bill playing his long flute by a campfire, and he's telling a story to the bride. And the story is about Pi May, who was the head priest of the White Lotus Clan, and the day that he was walking down the road, a Shaolin monk passed by him going the other way. Pai Mei uh, gave him the great honor of giving him the, a very faint nod, and the monk didn't nod back. So, to make a long story short, there's more to it in the movie, but uh, the short version is that Pai Mei ended up killing everyone in the Shaolin Temple, which was 60 monks. Mm-hmm. And Bill goes on to describe the five-point palm exploding heart technique. This is a martial arts technique where you hit five pressure points on your target, not too far from the heart. But after that, the target's still able to walk away, but only for five steps. After the fifth step, the heart explodes. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that will become significant later. <laughs> yeah. Pai Mei didn't teach Bill that, Bill admits, so we know that Bill studied under this Pai Mei. And now uh, when he started telling the story, he was, he said this Shaolin monk incident happened around the year of 1003. So we have to decide for ourselves, is Pai Mei really <laughs> that old, or was he just being fanciful for the sake of the story? No, he does have a really long, long beard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is, he is an older guy, so Bill says Pai Mei didn't teach him this five-point technique. Uh, he teaches no one that technique. Mm. Uh, Bill says, obey whatever Pai Mei says. If you flash him a defiant eye, he'll pluck <laughs> it out. 
and we'll see where that goes later yep. too. There's a lot of a uh, lot of setups. I, I didn't even on. notice that one. So yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Good <laughs> There's a scene change now, and it's Bill walking down some stone steps in a you know forest or jungle somewhere, and he says he'll accept you as his student. And the video quality has now changed from the previous scene around the campfire. It was very you know crisp modern day video. Now. This is like 1970s-style color film. It's got a very slight blur to it, you know, like a lot of those 70s movies have. And this is probably meant to evoke kung fu movies of the 70s. Though for me, I don't know why exactly, because it's been years since I saw it, but this reminded me of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that that style of uh, film quality. I think we'll talk about it some more. I mean, there's a lot of things here that call back to that 70s sort of, you know, martial arts film stuff. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, Bill looks a little beat up. He's got some uh, bruises and cuts on his face. Uh, So he may have had a heated discussion with Pai Mei before he accepted her as his student. So Bill gives the bride some final, final admonishments. He, uh, he tells her he hates Caucasians, despises Americans, and has nothing but contempt for women. <laughs> so that uh, she's got three strikes against her already. Yeah. Then he drives off, leaving her at the base of these steps. So she walks up, and Pai Mei is sitting up at the top. He's a white-haired man. He's got his hair in a bun, and he's got this long, silky white beard that... Uh, We'll see throughout uh, the ensuing scenes, he strokes this beard very frequently. Yeah, and he strokes it in a very stereotypically, like, over-the-top way. I mean, again, that gets Mm -hmm. back to, like, it's an old-fashioned movie. Also, the way they position this, he's sitting on these stone stairs that are exactly centered with this round column of stones behind him. So it's a very, very composed shot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like approaching an altar or a shrine yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, And she says, like, one word, and he's like, your Mandarin sucks. <laughs> it's like, what she says, like, one word. <laughs> she was like, hello. It's like, your Mandarin sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he criticizes her Mandarin. He hopes she at least speaks Cantonese, but she doesn't. She does speak Japanese pretty mm-hmm. well, she says, but he's not impressed by that at all. He uh, doesn't like Japanese. So he says he's going to communicate with her like a dog, by yelling, by pointing, by beating her with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Pai Mei's character, to me, he looks like a young guy made up to look old. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think he's a younger <laughs> guy who's just, you know, got white, you know, a white wig and a white fake beard and so forth. Mm-hmm. And when I typed young guy, that reminded me of the Chinese food joke from one of the Wayne's World movies. Are you familiar with them at all? Yes, but I don't think I know this one. Well, you know, we had talked about SNL-based movies recently, and I was uh, it occurred to me while I was making this note that um, Wayne's World is one of the really good SNL-based movies, I would yeah, say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Blues Brothers came to mind also, but... I digress. Anyway, mm-hmm. the joke is they're ordering Chinese food, and Wayne says he'll have the cream of some young guy. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was funny. It was just <laughs> vulgar, but that's, you know, I enjoy vulgarity. Mm-hmm. 
So the bride tells her new master, Pai Mei, that she's proficient in tiger crane style and more than proficient in the exquisite art of the samurai sword. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you never want to tell your new master that you're more than proficient in something. <laughs> that just means that they're going to prove that you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just setting yourself up for a fall. Pai Mei says the exquisite art is only fit for Japanese fatheads. <laughs> he tells her to take a sword from her weapon rack. He says if she can land a single blow, he'll bow down and call her master. Yeah, and he is unarmed, right? So he's like, you yeah. can come at me with this sword, and if you can land anything while I'm unarmed, <laughs> you'll be a master. <laughs> yeah. So she attacks, and he dodges very casually. He's standing there with his uh, arms behind his back. And every time she attacks, he just takes a little tiny step back or to <laughs> the side, hardly moving at all, just as little as possible. And at one point, her blade is outstretched with the flat up, you know, the, the edges to the sides. And he jumps to stand on her blade. <laughs> and she's astonished. Yeah. Uh, but only long enough for him to say, from here you can get an excellent view of my foot. And then he kicks her in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so they go at it some more, and he ends up taking her sword from her. He insults her skills. Then he tosses the sword, and it lands perfectly back in the weapon <laughs> Yeah, rack. it's like this impossible shot, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's literally going into the to the holder for the sword that tore anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now they do hand-to-hand, -hand, the actual kung fu stuff. And again, he is just much, much better than she is. At one point, she manages to kick him in the crotch. And it looks for a moment like she's hurt him. There's a little pause there. Uh, but no, he whirls, which throws her to the ground. And then he laughs. He twists her arm behind her, finally, in an excruciating pose. And then he asks a series of questions that lead up to her admitting that she's helpless against him. Mm -hmm. uh, she falls to the ground again, and she's admitted she's helpless, and he says, that's the beginning. <laughs> so the scene changes. Her, her training was to begin the next day, and so now it's the next day. He puts his fist through a thick board. Then he does it again, and he tells her to do the same. Well, she tries until her knuckles are bloody. And it's very, I don't know how they filmed it exactly, but I don't know if it's a prosthetic or what, but one of her knuckles has like a flap of skin hanging off it, which yeah. uh, looks very realistic because <laughs> I've had similar yeah. flaps <laughs> hanging off now, of me before. One thing I should mention here is that all of this is what's called bullshito, <laughs> which is, and you can go on YouTube and watch this stuff, right? And these guys are like, oh, I can do two fingers and, you know, send someone across the room or give them a heart attack, as we've seen here. And it's all mm. bullshit. And <laughs> there's a hilarious set of YouTube videos where, like, a boxer in China goes after these guys and destroys them in, like, 10 seconds, right? <laughs> so it's great for movies, but the reality is, no, and a person who actually has strength and, and speed and everything just destroys these people. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. No, not sure. But oh, it's fun to I think that there's the five-point heart, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just fun. I hadn't heard that term before, and it's it's funny because I, if I remember right, Bushido was like the honor code of the samurai. 
so the uh, Bullshito is <laughs> very amusing. Mm. So then we get a training montage, and it includes such things as carrying water up those long, long steps. And uh, Bill had warned her that that, that would be some fun. <laughs> mm. She's practicing kung fu moves, punching boards, and never punching through the boards. She's sleeping in one scene, and she punches a board in her sleep, <laughs> which turns out to be the stone wall next to her bed. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> which kind of messes up her hand, yeah. <laughs> yeah. After this little montage, we see them eating rice at a table, and she's struggling to manage the chopsticks. Her fingers are just, her hands are shaking. Right, and at the same time, of course, the master has no problem at all, you know, using his oh, chopsticks. Oh, yeah, he's just, <laughs> he's just enjoying his meal, yeah. And finally, she grabs a clump of rice with her fingers, gives up on the chopsticks, and Pai Mei throws her bowl to the floor. He tells her that if she wants to eat like a dog, she can sleep outside like a dog. And he gives her another bowl. And finally, she ends up having to use both hands to steady the chopsticks, but she gets a clump of rice up to her mouth. And we see Pai Mei stroke his beard as he watches her do this. Uh, and he's apparently satisfied with her. And I gotta say, and we've seen this a whole bunch of times already, he, every time he strokes his beard, again, it's that very 1960s, you know, exaggerated Asian guy stroking his beard. I mean, clearly this is oh, a very yeah. stereotypical thing. It's really funny. Yeah. And, and this, in this scene, I think he actually ends it with sort of a little flourish. On top yeah. of the everything else. So now we go back into the coffin where the bride is buried alive somewhere. Uh, well, it turns out it's in Barstow, which is famous uh, probably for many reasons, but to me it's famous from being mentioned toward the beginning of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> She's in the coffin. She's calmed down. She wriggles until the leather belt that's tied around her ankles pushes her boots off. And then the leather belt follows. So now her feet are free. And through contorting and wriggling, she passes one of her boots to where her hands can get at it. And she gets a straight razor out of her boot, hmm. which she uses to saw at the rope around her wrists. And she has the flashlight balanced up on her chest uh, while she works. And uh, we get some Western music here that's really... To me, I think it's really good. It's it's hopeful and it's energetic. It sort of makes you optimistic that she just might get out of this. <laughs> it's a good yeah. good music selection. I mean, Tarantino is very, very seldom off with his music selection. I think. Now, you know, the less optimistic take I'll be is that, like, there's very little air in this coffin, so I don't think she could have yeah. done everything she did, but I'm glad she managed to make it work. <laughs> it's I, I don't know. It would depend on... Uh, certainly there aren't... They didn't, like, put in air holes for her, plus there's dirt <laughs> on top of it. You know, then again, with... If if she can learn all this kung fu, then she can probably master some kind of breathing technique and so <laughs> forth. Uh, who knows? Mm. I'll allow it. So this music is going, uh, making us hopeful. Uh, she's tapping the wood above her for weak spots. And finally she says, okay, Pai Mei, here I mm -hmm. come. 
And she begins this technique that she's practiced thousands of times. Her knuckles leave bloody marks on the wood, uh, but at last she punches through and then the dirt pours in. And we see her climbing up through the dirt in, for what looks like 50 feet or so. It's just <laughs> a continuous climb. And at last, uh, and the way it's filmed is neat too, because of course, if she were really in solid dirt, you couldn't film that. So, right. so it's kind of filmed as a cross section, you know, like when you see cross sections in cartoons of like dinosaur bones right, and right. pirates treasure and stuff. It also... We get that kind of zombie movie shot where her hand comes up out of the dirt. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Just the single hand comes up out of the grave and then and then her other hand and then the rest of her. She just lies panting on the dirt, catching her breath for a little bit. And then we see a man in a, in a late night diner. He's the guy working the counter. Uh, he looks out the big picture window and he sees, emerging from the cemetery, this uh, dusty, dirty figure stalking towards the diner. A dust, just clouds <laughs> of dust streaming behind her. And uh, it, she looks very zombie-like in this <laughs> scene. So I, if I was working alone in a diner late at night and I saw that, I'd, uh, I'd be a bit apprehensive, I think. <laughs> but she comes in all caked with dirt, and she asks for a glass of water. And she... She looks pleasant enough about it, so maybe that made him worry a little less. And then we get the titles for Chapter 9, L and I. <laughs> There's a little pun there, I just realized. <clears throat> anyway, L drives a Pontiac Firebird, nice car, to Bud's trailer, and she carries a red suitcase, sort of medium-sized. Because right, earlier she'd agreed to bring him a million dollars for the... Hanzo's sword, right? <laughs> right, right. And that's what's in the suitcase. And then we see the bride who's wandering over the desert in the hills. And she's up on a hill when she sees Elle's firebird arrive. And then we get a close-up of the bride's face. And we get that Ironside music again. You know, <laughs> the, I can't do it, but, you know, it's very... Uh, tense and uh, suggests that some violence may be coming. <laughs> so inside the trailer, Bud makes blender margaritas uh, that look uh, pretty refreshing. And he tells Elle about Paula's grave. And he asks her whether she's filled with relief or regret having been done with the assassin business. Mm. And she says regret. Bud opens the suitcase and he starts taking his money out. And he's just beaming. He's very happy about it. Under the first layer of money, it turns out there's a black mamba snake, <laughs> uh, which bites him in the face. And uh, black mamba, uh, I don't know if we've heard it in this movie yet, but in the first movie, that was the bride's name, her code yeah, name. Yeah, like basically every, all the women in this have a snake name, and so Black Mamba is, you know, her name, yes. Yeah, and at one point we find out, maybe it's just in the credits, I can't remember, but at one point we find out that Bill's code name is Snake Charmer. Yeah, I think that's at the very end of the this movie. <laughs> oh, okay. 
So while Bud is dying on the floor, Al reads some Wikipedia information of the <laughs> Black Mamba. Well, I thought that was interesting because this is before, you know, Wikipedia and a lot of the web and everything, right? So she has a mm. a notepad and she has written with, you know, great precision on the notepad the stuff that she's looked up. And so it's kind of interesting. Now oh, she yeah. would just be looking at her phone, right? But Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> And she says that now she feels regret. She had already said she felt regret, but now she feels regret that the greatest warrior she ever met died at the hands of a bushwhacking scrub alky. She deserved <laughs> better. And Bud dies, uh, and mercifully for him, it doesn't even take, I think she said she estimated it would take about 20 minutes given the amount of venom he got. Uh, it only took him... Yeah, four or five. So he, he got off easy. Well, there, yeah, she did indicate that sometimes the first bites have, you know, way more poison in them, et cetera. <laughs> so, yeah. Elle yeah. goes and puts the money back in the case. She's she's apparently not at all concerned about the, the snake that's in the room here. <laughs> she figures she can handle it, I guess. Her cell phone rings, uh, and she tells Bill that the bride killed Bud, which is kind of a shabby trick, you know, but uh, mm -hmm. oh well. Well, yeah, and she says the bride had a black mambo in yeah, she the put a, trailer. Right, she killed him by putting the snake in the trailer and just waiting for yeah. it to work on him. Uh, also, what I think is funny here, just in terms of when this took place, right, is she has to take out her cell phone, flip it up, and then pull up the antenna, <laughs> which is <laughs> the way things were before we got the sort of iPhone-style uh, stuff. So that, I just find that amusing. It puts this at a place in time, right? Oh, yeah. She tells Bill that if he lays flowers at the grave of Paula Schultz in Barstow, that's the last resting place of Beatrix Kiddo. And... Well, this is the first time we've heard this name, though we have heard mm. Bill call the bride kiddo before. Mm. Um, we figured he just meant kiddo. <laughs> mm. And then we get a quick cutaway, an elementary school teacher doing roll call. She gets to Beatrix Kiddo, and, she, you know, all the different young kids are answering their roles. And uh, Beatrix Kiddo, when it gets to her, there's a full-grown Uma Thurman sitting there, and she says, <laughs> here... And then it cuts mm -hmm. back to inside the trailer. Al finishes her call with Bill. She grabs the suitcase and the Hanzo sword, and she opens the trailer door to leave. And that's where we'll turn it over to Ron. So having killed Bud, L opens the trailer door, and then we get a shot that completely summarizes Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> we have bare feet flying in horizontally, as in wire work, kung fu kind of shot. And the bare feet, of course, belong to Beatrix, who we now know as Beatrix. Yeah. And... L has the Hanzo sword. Beatrix has nothing. You know, so they have an epic and brutal fight. And there's a number of things about this fight that I'm going to point out. <laughs> One is that both of them at some points either kick or punch the other in the crotch. Mm -hmm. And 
We often see in action movies guys getting kicked in the balls in movies, but I think it's under-considered that women are also sensitive in that area. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, although I think it's the testicles that really uh, are the sensitive, because getting poked in a testicle or kicked in a testicle. Sure. Is, uh, to me, I think the sensation is comparable to getting poked in the eye. It's sort of a same, yeah. the same nervous But still, it's not pleasant there. for women either. That's all I'm going to say. Well, and sure. They definitely yeah. make use of that. Well, getting kicked <laughs> or punched anywhere is not yeah. pleasant. Another item towards the end of this fight, it's a pretty epic fight. Beatrix comes across the Hanzo sword that Bud said that he'd sold for $250. <laughs> so it turns out he was lying. Yeah, he was just he was just trying to get Bill's goat, I think. Yeah. And the other thing we didn't know previously that we see on an inscription on the sword is that Bill had actually gifted this sword to Bud. And the sword yeah. has an inscription that says, To my brother Bud, the only man I ever loved. Mm-hmm. So once you see that, you know the degree to which Bud was trolling Bill when he said he sold his sword <laughs> for $250. Yeah. So it makes you wonder also if Bud had ever really let his sword play get out of practice. He may yeah. have kept it up. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, something I wanted to mention about that scene where kiddo gets out of the coffin mm-hmm. they must have either taken paula schultz's coffin with them or maybe left it somewhere uh near the grave but uh wouldn't it have been a kick in the ass if she got through the top of her coffin only to find that there was a whole nother coffin above her <laughs> boy that would have been yeah lovely. yeah <laughs> Anyway, I'm sorry, right. go on. So now we have an extended flashback where we learned that Pyme was training L after he trained Beatrix. And at one point, L insults him and he pulls out one of her eyes. Yeah, which is exactly what Bill had warned Kiddo would happen if she yeah. was disrespectful. And... Then, in response to that, L ends up poisoning Pai Mei, so Pai Mei dies. <laughs> so now <laughs> we have this point in this fight where Beatrix pulls out the other eye of L. so now both her eyes have been pulled out. <laughs> She's really not yeah. happy about this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, and she just goes nuts then, L does. Yeah. I guess when both your eyes are pulled out, I guess it's understandable. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, under the circumstances. But Now, uh, here's my question for you. Did you notice the homage to Blade Runner here? I don't think so. I know Daryl Hannah was uh, Pris in Blade Runner. Yeah, so um, remember, when she gets killed in Blade Runner, she is writhing around on the floor uh, in a very specific way. And oh. that's the exact same thing they do here. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't caught that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although, of course, in this case, she's not actually, I don't think she's even dying. And, no, and she's not dead Kiddo... even when she leaves. But nonetheless, she does that whole kind of writhing around on the floor in the same yeah. way as in Blade Runner. So I just thought that was amusing. Oh, yeah. She's screaming and she's she's just flailing. And yeah, it's a, yeah. it's, yeah, a, an assassin with her training, you'd expect to have a little bit more composure. But, uh, 
Oh, well, it's understandable, at least. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, Beatrix doesn't even bother to kill her. She just leaves her flailing around blind, as if that's yeah. bad enough. Although, we get an implication here because there's a shot of that black mamba snake who lets, you know, Beatrix go out without being bit. But so my assumption is that the snake would end up biting L. Right, yeah, that that yeah. seems likely, and it would be ironic too, because of course, uh, L had lied about her saying that she put the tra- snake in the trailer to kill Bud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, she's going to get a little bit of an I- doubly ironic <laughs> death. First, getting her other eye plucked out, and then mm-hmm. bitten by the the snake. <laughs> and one final thing here: so when Beatrix she opens the trailer door and walks out, and we have this shot of this very you know Western thing with the the kind of rocky crags and everything. I don't even know what the right word for them is. This is exactly like the final shot in The Searchers with John Wayne. Hmm, never saw it. Well, that's another one we should put on the list because it's a really interesting film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was the reference here. Well, it'd be game. We could do a whole Western season for that's that That's true. <laughs> <laughs> we only have about 20 other seasons to do. But yeah. <laughs> And now, and this is interesting because we're like halfway through the film. This is a really long film, right? So we have like an hour and a half mm-hmm. left. And we get, you know, informed that this is the last chapter face-to-face. I'm like, really? Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> like, we're going to have 90 minutes? <laughs> I, th- I think there's more. I think there's more like an hour left at yeah. this point. But yeah, yeah. There's still a good, good deal more to come. Yeah. Beatrix is driving like a bat out of hell on a small dirt road surrounded by vegetation. And she drives up to what's clearly kind of a third world looking cafe slash store, right? It's not something you'd find in the United States. Yeah, not many places anyway. It's like a little little bar, just an open walled hut type thing. Uh, yeah. Looks like it'd be a fun place to have a drink, actually, <laughs> if you got along with the owner anyway. In a narration, she tells us that Esteban Vejeo was a father figure for Bill. And he's sitting in the cafe. He's retired. He presumably owns this place. And he ran a brothel in Mexico for over 50 years. And his deal was <laughs> when the prostitutes would get pregnant, he would turn their children into his army. So he's built up this army of boys <laughs> from the prostitutes. Now, this doesn't really become a part of the movie, but it's sort of an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, and I, I figured, I, it had been long enough since I saw this movie that uh, when it appeared in the narration, I just assumed, well, I guess we're going to have a fight with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so she has a conversation with him. She wants to know where Bill is. I didn't look this up. I should have. I don't think this actor speaks English, and I'm going to assume he's like a well-known Hispanic actor that Tarantino wanted to include. But he didn't speak English, so he was kind of mouthing the words. And they don't provide subtitles, at least by default. And I often had no idea what he was saying. No, no kidding. Well, I I did have subtitles on, so I I didn't have trouble following. Yeah, I was was going in pure, so I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, maybe having the subtitles prevented me from noticing that. Hmm. So he tells her, the interesting thing is, he tells her where Bill is. He says Bill is like a son to him. And the reason he's telling her is that Bill would want him to tell her. 
which she doesn't buy, but he told her, so, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I think he's probably right. I think probably yeah. Bill did want her to show up. But Yeah, I think so, too. We can't say for certain. So she drives to what appears to be a set of luxury condos, because it's not like his own place. Like, there's numbers on the doors, and he's, like, number 114 or something. And she has her sword on her back and a pistol in her hand, and she opens the door to his place, and she goes in. And I got to say, I think this is one of the most unexpected, bizarre sequences in all this. So Bill is on a terrace outside of his place, and he's playing with, and this is just shocking, what turns out to be her four-year-old daughter. Yeah, although at the end of the first movie, he did ask uh, that Sophie, uh, he said, does she know that her daughter's still alive or something like that? I didn't even remember that. So I'm just looking at this like, oh, my God, you know, and she clearly didn't know, right? I mean, she is totally shocked. Well, that was like the very last scene of the previous movie was, you know, he's got his, he's standing behind Sophie in the hospital and, you know, all that. Anyway, okay, yeah, it is still surprising because I, I had forgotten about it until okay. it came up. And here. then to make things more weird, her daughter is pointing a toy gun at her and calls her mommy. Hmm. And Bill also has a toy gun and he minds being shot. And one of the disturbing things in this, I mean, it's, it's really effective and really disturbing, is he has a really good relationship with his daughter. Yeah, at least from what we see, they uh, they seem to get along just fine. Yeah, he plays with her, he's always for a floor with her, and you're like, wait, this is an evil guy. <laughs> How can he have a good relationship with his daughter? Right? Yeah, although we also know that Kiddo herself was in love with him for a long time. Yeah, so and she is paralyzed. She's looking at her daughter and Bill. She had no idea that her daughter was alive. And then her daughter shoots her with the plague gun, and she's supposed to fall over. And it takes her a while to kind of respond. But eventually, she dutifully does a dramatic death. (laughs) Yeah, she sort of spins around before she falls down. And it's, yeah. And it turns out Bill told her daughter that she was asleep, but that one day she would wake up and come back. And then we have several scenes of all of them interacting, and I, I'm not going to describe them all, but it's really interesting because you have simultaneously Bill being, you know, again, very good with his daughter and very good with all this, but there's this incredible background menace because we know that Beatrix and Bill are going to try to kill each other at some point. So this actually, I think it harkens back to the first or one of the first scenes in the first movie where she shows up at the one assassin's house and the daughter comes home on the school mm-hmm. bus, mm-hmm. which ends up not stopping the bloodshed. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a similar situation in a way. Yep. That's a good point. Now, again, the kind of thing I wouldn't have expected, rather than then having some kind of fight or whatever, Beatrix now gets in bed with her daughter and they watch a movie together. Right. And the daughter chooses Shogun Assassin. Now, I don't know anything about this. Apparently, it's long. 
what we hear on screen, it seems inappropriate for a four-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect this is a movie that Tarantino made up for this film, but I could be wrong. But yeah, there's like all sorts of, you know, cutting off heads or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so the daughter eventually falls asleep and Beatrix carefully arranges her, you know, with blankets and a doll that she sort of hugs. And she goes into the living room, and Bill is there, and he's admiring her Hanzo sword. Bill proposes that the two of them either have a sword fight on the beach under the full moon, or at dawn, they do it in the old-style manner. <laughs> Beatrix doesn't want to wait, so she lunges at him. <laughs> well, she actually lunges for the sword. Yeah. Uh, and he pulls out a pistol and shoots at her, which doesn't hit her, but it suppresses her. Bill says we have a dilemma because he can't believe anything she says about him, but he wants to know the reality. And then he shoots her with a true serum dart. <laughs> so it's kind of a plot thing, right? This mm -hmm. is a true serum that is twice as strong as sodium pentothal. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he developed it himself, I guess. He's mm -hmm. very proud of it. Um, it should also give her a euphoric effect, he says. Yeah, which she, she says doesn't she really doesn't have. But yeah. Now... Here's something, here's, I'm going to say, one of the only cases in, in these two movies where I feel like there's a break in how it works, which is Bill now goes on an extended dialogue about superheroes. Hmm. And this is a classic Tarantino kind of thing, right? Hmm. Um, but it doesn't fit Bill at all. Why would Bill be reading superhero comics? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I feel like this is Tarantino talking directly to the audience, but it's not his character talking to the audience. Because I just do not believe that Bill was reading superhero comics. I, I don't know. I could, uh, I, I could see it. You know, lots of <laughs> lots of people have interests that you wouldn't yeah. expect. So I could, I could buy it. But yeah, it, it does. Uh, it does seem sort of. Uh, uh, it's it's definitely more didactic than a lot of the stuff yeah. we get where he's, uh, he goes on to say that, uh, whereas with Batman and Spider-Man, they, they have their identities they were born with. And then they have the superhero identities. Mm -hmm. Clark Kent is a different case. Superman is Superman from birth and Clark Kent is an identity that he adopts. Right. And, and it's the way that, he chose to portray Clark Kent was his critique of humanity. Right. Uh, and Clark Kent was weak and that meant humanity was weak. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, uh, kiddo's decision to stop being kiddo and become Arlene was her critique of humanity. <laughs> that spills. Yeah. So I just have to say this just didn't work for me. I just felt to me like the director was reaching out to me instead of the characters. Um, that's, that's fair. I enjoyed it, though. I didn't have a mm -hmm. problem with it. Now, he does point out to her, he says, you know, all the people you killed to get to me, that felt damn good, didn't it? And she's under the, you know, true serum, so she says yes. And he then wants to know why she left him and his daughter, his daughter, meaning, you know, who she was pregnant with when he shot her. Mm -hmm. And we now get a flashback where she recounts the story of her last assignment to kill Lisa Wong. And at the start of the assignment, she takes a pregnancy test and realizes she's pregnant. 
And at the moment she realizes she's pregnant, the assassin that Lisa Wong has hired comes to the door, rings the doorbell, and she's got a shotgun behind her back. But she says she's the hospitality manager for the hotel. Beatrix accidentally drops her pregnancy test, which is very lucky <laughs> because <laughs> she bends down and then the hospitality manager shoots a whole huge hole through the door. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have a standoff pointing guns at each other. And this is really interesting. Beatrix tells the assassin to check her pregnancy test on the floor to prove she's pregnant. And they go through this whole process where she's trying to find the pregnancy test. Then she doesn't know how to read it. Then Yeah, she's trying to pick these things up while keeping the shotgun trained on the kiddo still. And then Beatrix is like, well, pick up the box. That'll give you the instructions for how to read it. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) she picks that up. And... Finally, she checks the test, and she leaves and says congratulations and then runs away. So that's kind of interesting. She really didn't want to kill an unborn child. Yeah, Beatrix said, if you leave, I'll leave. So Lisa Wong is going to live for another decade, I guess. (laughs) Coming to the present, Beatrix tells Bill that before that strip turned blue, she totally belonged to him. She'd do anything he wanted. But once that strip was blue, no longer... And Bill admits that by shooting her, he overreacted, which, you know, that's a good thing for him to admit. (laughs) (laughs) But she's not impressed. (laughs) So they start their fight. They're like in chairs, and they're (laughs) fighting in these chairs, so it's kind of funny. Yeah, there's a a moment where she sort of scoots her chair around (laughs) to get a better angle on him, and it's, Yeah. yeah, it's cute. One of the things I really appreciate here, and because this is the final fight of the film, it doesn't go on for 10 minutes. I mean, them fighting in chairs only lasts for a few seconds. Oh, yeah. You'd think the big the big boss fight, that's got to go on forever. But nope. Yeah. <laughs> and then she ends it by surprising him with the five-point exploding heart technique <laughs> that was talked yeah, about. She, she reaches out and does a couple taps on his chest, almost like she's playing piano or something. Yeah. And that's it. Then she pulls her hand back, and he's got a little bit of blood coming out of his nose or mouth or you know, some. Yeah. So he's got a little bit of blood from somewhere. And he knows what's happened, and he says, wow, Pai Mei taught you the five-point exploding heart technique, which, if you recall from earlier, Pai Mei never taught that to Bill. Right. And so he's impressed. And one of the weird things about this technique is that you survive for a few minutes before you die, right? So he has some time to talk to her. Yeah, and, and this made me wonder, you know how Hanzo Otori was willing to actually go to the trouble of breaking his oath just to build a sword that would kill Bill? Uh, maybe Paimai had similar regrets about training Bill, right, and you right. know that's why he taught her the technique. After a bit, he asked her, how do I look? And she says, you look ready, which I thought was pretty cool. And he stands up and kind of collects himself, and then he falls down and dies. Yeah, he takes the five steps, and precisely on the fifth step, that's when he <laughs> dies. So Bill has been killed. <laughs> <laughs> and Beatrix takes her daughter, and the next morning her daughter is watching old cartoons from bed. And Beatrix is in the bathroom on the floor, and she's writhing around and crying. And over and over she whispers, thank you. So... It's, you know, you have to make your own interpretation of what's happening here. I think clearly she regrets having to kill Bill, but also that makes her life possible with her daughter. So, you know, 
Then she joins her daughter in the bed, kisses her, drapes her arm around her, and we get the title, The Lioness Has Rejoined Her Cub and All is Right in the Jungle. And that's the end. Yeah, and the the version I watched, actually, in the credits, or, or I think before the credits proper, there was like a long black and white music video type thing. Hmm. Um, which probably isn't strictly necessary to the story, but it was neat. <laughs> Right. And then they have a very long sequence of credits that goes back to all the people in both films. One of the things I noticed in that was I had been curious about this. In the first film, there was the female band playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they say in the credits here that this is an actual band. So that was one thing I was curious about. Yeah. I I think it was the one, two, three, fours, maybe. I don't remember. Something like that. Yeah. Normally, we talk about was this worth watching, etc. But because in our next episode, we're going to talk about both of these films with two wonderful guests, you're going to have to wait <laughs> until next week to find out even more about what we think about these films. Yeah, I think I think I may have given some of my opinion away in the first uh, <laughs> volume, but... Uh... But I, I haven't said anything too committal about the second yeah. volume, so we'll... it might we might hate these films. You don't know until you listen yeah, to the next episode. Yeah, you no way of knowing yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Debajo de esas dos cejas, qué bonitos ojos tiene. Ellos me quieren mirar, pero si tú no los dejas, 